Three witches. What appears to be a castle and a black cat. If we weren't missing two officers and a third one dead, I'd say someone was playing an elaborate trick or treat on us. Trick or treat, Captain? Yes, Mr. Spark. You'd be a natural. Bridge to all decks. Welcome aboard Season 2 of Enterprise Incidents with Scott and Steve. I'm Scott Nance. And I'm Steve Morrison. I wish that we were jumping into Season 2 on an episode I could be 100% excited about. But instead, it's Cat Spa. <laughs> but you know what? Cat Spa is still fun. This is an episode I always liked. I thought it was fun. Not an episode that I watch a whole lot. So rewatching Cat's Ball for our season two premiere of Enterprise Incidents has been so rewarding for so many reasons. The biggest of which, Steve Morris, I had a massive epiphany. Oh, excited. I had a revelation during my rewatch of Cat's Paw that when we get to this point okay. in our deep dive, it is going to change the foundation of a debate that has been going hmm. on since 1982, and it is going to shake the foundation of the Star Trek world. When I make this revelation, it is going to answer a question that everyone has had okay. since 82. I have a guess about what it might be. What? But, but, do you want me to say it now? Go for it. Chekhov. Okay. And Wrath of Khan. Okay. Yes, it is. That's, that's what this answers, but you don't know why yet. Okay. Okay, well, as but, soon as you said 1982, yeah, it has I, it to be Chekhov in the Enterprise yeah. and Spacey. But when I get to this point, it's going to blow your mind, okay, as are other revelations that I had about Cat's Paw. So Cat's Paw was the very first episode that they shot for season two. It was filmed between May 2nd and May 11th, 1967. It was the 31st episode of Star Trek to film. It was a production schedule of seven and a half days. So that means it went a day and a half over schedule. Now, a few firsts about Cat's Paw is that Cat's Paw is the one, it's the first, but it is the only episode of Star Trek that was filmed and produced as a holiday special. Oh. In other words, from the moment this episode got the green light, it was intended to be the Halloween episode of Star Trek for obvious reasons. And it aired on October 27th, 1967. It was the 36th episode to air written by Robert Block, who wrote the first season episode, what are little girls made of directed by the great Joseph Pevney. So, so now you know, we talk so much about budget in season one. So in season two, when season two kicked off, the budget per episode was still $185,000 per episode. Now, when we were doing our season one wrap, I mentioned that collectively the, the series for the entire season was in the red for about $150,000. And as you so correctly pointed out, when you break it down episode by episode, it actually wasn't that bad. But because of all the lessons they learned, Steve, filming season one, so when they got to season two, and they're using now these directors that they've used before. And they're using that they have someone like Gene Kuhn, who's the showrunner. You would think that they, they figured it out, right? That they figured it out like, okay, we know where we went wrong. 
in the first season and why things went over budget so so much or as often as it did. But we got it down. We figured it out. We, we are like a well-oiled machine. So we're going to bring this baby, this first episode that we're producing for season two, we're going to bring this right on budget. Right? Wrong. Wrong! <laughs> Cat's fall cost $217,285, wow. which brings it $32,285 over budget. Now, when you watch this episode, you see where the money went. No, there's a lot of stuff. Absolutely. There's a lot of stuff. The production design, the visual effects from the Westheimer company. The visual effects alone for this episode cost $14,150. And for the first time in a long while, we had the entire episode had a brand new music score. The, the previous one that had a new score to it was sitting on the edge of forever, mm-hmm. but that was a partial score. Right. This is a full score, mm-hmm. and I love the score for Cat's Paw. It was composed by Gerald Freed. It was his second score after Shore Leave, which mm. is a great score. Yeah, that's a great one. And that score was recorded on June 21st, 1967. But one thing I will say that I absolutely loved during my rewatch, and this is something I love about about all of the second season, especially the first part of it, Jerry Finnerman, yep, his work on this episode, and and when you look at the next few episodes in production order, like the next one after this is Metamorphosis, the look of the show has never looked better than it did during the beginning of the second season. Also, everybody looks great. Mm-hmm. They're tan, rested, and ready after a, a summer. Shatner himself had never looked better than he did at the beginning of the second season. Uh, and uh, there's a theme. There are themes to this episode as we get into our deep dive that are, are what, something new about it, but something that definitely leans into something that we've seen many times before in Star Trek. You know, I want to mention something about budget. You know, you said we, that's the idea that we're going to figure it out. Anyone who does a lot of film production can tell you, you never figure it out. You never figure it out. I was, I was, a, I was teaching a, a class and teaching film school, I would sometimes be on the student filmmaker set. And there was something where they had to do some lighting through the window of a garage into a thing. And I'm with the cinematography instructor and they go, well, how do we do this? And the cinematography instructor and I look at each other and we go like, I've never had that particular problem before two people he him with a ton of experience me with you know some cinematography and i was going no i don't i don't know how to solve this problem and i suddenly went oh that's always what film production is it's always new now you got a giant cat and you got you know like there's just different now we got a lot of fog and now we have castle sets and now it's like you never know until you start shooting it what's going to cost i don't quite understand i don't understand why this is the first episode of the second season i don't understand why you would say let's spend a lot of money on this episode i guess because it's halloween but spoiler alert, I never really, I mean, it was always like, okay, this episode and watching it this time, this is one, it got a lot worse for Ooh, me. Well, yeah. maybe, maybe Steve, after this conversation, maybe it'll get a little better. Not, not a whole lot. That would be a wonderful gift if you uh, could give that to uh, me. Uh, okay. Well, well, listen, Robert Block's uh, original contract for, based on his pitch was dated March 6th, 1967. He wrote his outline March 9th. His second draft teleplay was dated April 14th. 
Dorothy Fontana comes in and does a rewrite, a final draft teleplay dated April 24th. Gene Roddenberry did a polish, a revised final draft on April 27th. And Gene Kuhn did some page revisions dated May 4th, 5th, and 10th. So like I said, this is the only Star Trek episode to be produced as a holiday special type of episode. I mean, the only Star Trek episode to this very day. Wow. So that's across all of the shows. And because the addition, because of the addition of a new cast member, this is the very first Star Trek episode to feature all seven members oh. of the main cast. Wow. Now, Robert Block based this on his own short story, Broomstick Ride, which was about an Earth ship that explores a planet with witches and warlocks. But that is how pre-production on this episode got started. Wow. Well, um, I want to tell you some of the things that were going on in the world, but first I want to share something, the discussion that Scott and I had off mic, which is that when we first started doing this, the very first couple of episodes of Enterprise Incidents, when we talked about the history of the time, we actually were talking about what happened when the episode aired? And then somewhere two or three episodes in, unbeknownst to us, we just kind of switched to what was going on when the film, when the episode was being filmed. And I, after a discussion, we would like to go back to what was going on when the episode aired. And the reason is, is we just kept thinking about that family that was driving home, you know, kid coming home from school. What did they watch on the news before they switched on Star Trek? And so from now on, we're going to do this is the week that led up to the airing of Cat's Bob, which happened on October 27th. So on October 20th, Roger Patterson and Roger Gimlin, they were in Bluff Creek, California, and they saw an animal unlike one they had ever seen before. And they caught a photograph of it, and that photograph was the first clearly documented proof of the existence of Bigfoot. Or oh, that Sasquatch. photo! Yep. That photo of him walking away and yep, looking at the camera? that's what it is. And at the time, they looked at it and go, like, we can't disprove, we can't say what this is. And more recently with computers, they found the zipper, and it's a fake. I got. I figured <laughs> it out. You know what that creature is? What? It's one of the creatures from the Galileo 7. Absolutely. Just wandered <laughs> off the Desilu lot. Revelation! Um, uh, on October 21st, there was huge, huge anti-war protests outside the Pentagon and the Lincoln Memorial. More than 100,000 people came to these protests. Lyndon Johnson feared that this would result in a domestic crisis, that there would be riots across the country. And many, many newspapers said that these protesters were led by professional troublemakers and communist agitators. Um, on the same day, 47 out of 190 men on board, the Israeli on board an Israeli destroyer were killed when the ship was hit by three Egyptian missiles. And there was massive wounded. Um, three days later, Israel retaliates, and they basically take out the major oil refineries in Egypt that handle 80% of Egypt's oil. On October 26th, and this is a really important one in our history up to a few years ago, U.S. Navy pilot John McCain III was oh, shot wow. down in North Vietnam and taken mm. prisoner. Mm. He ejected over Han Hanoi. He broke both arms and his right leg. He was a prisoner of war for more than five years, turning down a chance to be set free early before finally being released in 1973. Wow, what a life. Amazing. Yeah. Would you like to get into Cat's Paw? Well, uh, yes, because I cannot wait to share my revelation. I'm so excited about it. 
right away the music that opens is different the vibe is totally different still no response sir i'll keep it open they're on the planet pyrus 7 hmm. which even in the remaster visual effects it like looks really sinister and ominous hmm. it looks like a spooky planet it's true scott and sulu should have contacted us again a half an hour ago they may have nothing to report our sensors indicate no life forms except our landing party both those men are well aware of landing party procedure and then suddenly we get a message. Contact established, Captain. Jackson to Enterprise. Enterprise. Kirk here. One to beam up, Enterprise. One? Jackson, where are Scott and Sulu? I'm ready to beam up, sir. Right now, we know something is going on. And we give the order to beam up one member. We ask McCoy to meet us in the transporter room. We get to the transporter room. They energize the transporters. And there is Jackson. And he beams aboard. He's just standing there, staring off into space. And this is why you know immediately that Jimmy Jones, who played Jackson, is a stuntman. Oh, my God. What a fall. Look. I'm surprised he didn't fall through that set. (laughs) That hurt. Having done a lot of falls, (laughs) that one really hurts. (laughs) Like Like, you look at that fall. I mean, like. You, you, I'm surprised you didn't see like a silhouette of his body at uh, the bottom of the transporter platform there. Oh, uh, absolutely brutal. And again, McCoy runs up, they turn him over and says he's dead. No medical help. That doesn't do anything. No CPR. Now, one thing about the <laughs> earlier version mm. that uh, Robert Block wrote is that it wasn't Jackson who dies. It was Sulu. Oh. Sulu died. Oh. And the producers are like, Sulu's a major character. Uh-uh. Sorry. Yeah, not killing him. <laughs> and then we hear... Out of Jackson's unmoving mouth, a creepy, creepy voice that says, Captain Kirk. <laughs> I know. That's cheesy. Can you hear me? There is a curse on your ship. Leave this place or you, you will, will all die. die. And then that music sting. That is a teaser. Now, uh, I got to say, when you do watch Cat's Paw, there's only one way to watch it. I just did. I it. just watched it. I do. <laughs> when you watch it again, if you watch it again, Steve, <laughs> the best way to watch it is in the dark. Of course. You mean it's not like on my iPad while I'm trying to get my kid to sleep? Because no, that's how I, mean, I watched you know, part of like it You know, like if you're on a plane time. watching it, you know, on your iPad, not the same effect. We're back in Act 1, and we leave DeSalle in command. We get DeSalle back. We haven't seen him for a while. Um, and our... Big three, Kirk, Spock, and McCoy are going to beam down to the planet. Now, while they're beaming down, you know, the Enterprise is in orbit. They beam down, and you hear a captain's log. Mm. Steve, it is time for my revelation. Okay, tell me. Okay. The star date is 3018.2. Okay. Now, if you put the star dates in order chronologically, Mm -hmm. which, of course, you should do. So that means that even though Cat's Paul was the first episode filmed for the second season, the star date means that the events of Cat's Paw actually took place after the events of the Menagerie. What? And before the events of Shore Leaf because of the star dates. The wow. star date, 3018.2, falls between the Menagerie and Shore Leaf. And Chekhov is on the bridge of the Enterprise in Cat's Paw, which means that since this episode takes place before shore leave it also takes place before space seed so that means that Chekhov was indeed aboard the enterprise 
during Space Seed, even though we did not see him. So it is absolutely conceivable that somewhere on the lower decks of the Enterprise, Khan did indeed run into Mr. Chekhov, and that is why he says in The Wrath of Khan, I never forget a face, Mr. Chekhov. He was there on the Enterprise, and there you go. That's it. People have been wondering, how could he remember Mr. Chekhov? He wasn't even in the first season, but if you look at the chronological order of star dates, Chekhov was there. In, on the Enterprise, even though we didn't see him during Space Heat, he was on the Enterprise. That's the revelation. Scott Mance. Yes. I believe that this is a discovery of Eureka level proportions. It is. I, I had believe, a Eureka moment. I believe this is the apple falling down from the tree for Isaac Newton. I believe this is Einstein in the patent office discovering the theory of relativity. I feel like you have cracked the code. I cracked the code. This is it. Stardate 3018.2 is earlier than Space Seed. And by the way, here's the other thing. When we see Chekhov on the Enterprise at Cat's Paw, we don't see him in the, at the, in the navigator station he's at the science, the science station. station yeah so maybe he was just filling in for spock but in actuality he had not yet been promoted to the navigator position where we will soon see him this begs a question because i i know there are people who have looked into this in detail i never have because that's not my particular variety of geek <laughs> how accurate are the star dates how oh well look, uh, truth be told I don't think they put a whole lot of thought into them. I mean, the fact that they dated this star date and it's it's in the second season, but it's 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 actually airing after all those episodes. But it's dated before. It's dated before. I, it, that was just a, a, a fluke. I mean, did uh, they did they mistake. work out what the star dates meant when they were doing them? They they never actually consciously worked it out. But thanks to headcanon, <laughs> uh, and certainly you know the way I look at it. I look at the first number of the star date indicating the year that they're in space. So because the star date for this episode is 3018.2, I look at Cat's Paw as taking place during the third year of the Enterprise five-year mission. Gotcha. And that theory is supported by the fact that in the third season, the, the star dates towards the end of the third season, the first number is a five. Right. But we never saw... Uh, anything beyond, at least not a live action Star Trek. So that is why I like to subscribe to my theory that the three years that Star Trek aired actually did encompass the five-year mission of the Enterprise. Now, the animated series, the numbers do get into the sixes. Mm. And the animated series is actually considered canon, which is why uh, we, the, the name James Tiberius Kirk, Tiberius came from an animated right. episode. And also, uh, because we decided, you and me, Steve, breaking news, we are going to continue Enterprise Incidents into the animated series when we are finished with the live action series. It is a big deal. The um, and, and, and you know what, Scott? I think your system for star dates, if it can prove how Khan found, saw Chekhov, then I think your system, that's evidence that your that's system is That's what I'm accurate. going with. I mean, after all these years, Steve, it was a eureka moment. Amazing. And you know what? For everybody listening, if you're down with me on my theory about why Chekhov was there during Spacey, we just didn't saw him, hit me up on Twitter, uh, Movie Mance, and let me know you're with me. 
listen to what the man said. <laughs> so we're down on the planet. It's nighttime. It's foggy in a place that there shouldn't be fog. It's rocky. The sound is kind of creepy. Um, and we suddenly get some life readings. Now, well, here's my question, Steve. Yes. So Jackson is dead. Yes. Scott and Sewell are missing. Kirk, Spock, and McCoy beam down with no security guards. Correct. Why? <laughs> I mean, well, I think we've established, and then it gets proven later, as you brought up a few episodes ago in the Ultimate Computer. The reason they pick a landing party is entirely because that's the characters that this writers wanted to have on the planet. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. That's why. <laughs> um, and we call up to uh, the Enterprise, and we get to see this new character. Report, Mister. I am only picking up physical impulses from the three of them. This new character. Wearing a very funky wig. It's terrible. <laughs> it's terrible. Poor Walter Koenig. But yes, there is Walter Koenig. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome aboard. Ensign Chekhov. Cat's Paw is Walter Koenig's first of 36 episodes of Star Trek. But it was actually supposed to be a one-shot deal. And when Walter Koenig went to do a reading for the part, there was another actor there who he doesn't remember who it was. I would sure love to know who that was. That that also read and Walter Koenig was told, Hey, come with me. And he was getting fitted for his uniform. That's how he found out that he got right. the job. But Walter Koenig was 30 years old at the time. Chekhov is supposed to be 22. So he wore a Beatles wig to look younger and appeal to a younger demographic. Uh, also appeal to everyone who loved the Beatles and the monkeys. But the whole reason for for a Russian character being on the bridge of the Enterprise came out of the Pravda newspaper, which was the official mm -hmm. newspaper of the Communist Party, calling out Star Trek for not having a Russian crew member aboard the Enterprise. So Chekhov was Gene Roddenberry's response to Pravda pointing this out, and that is why we had a Russian aboard the Enterprise. Casting director Joe D'Agosta suggested him after working with him on Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Uh, the episode was Memo from Purgatory, which was written by Harlan Ellison. But Walter Koenig had appeared, uh, made his first appearance on a 1962 episode of Combat. It was uncredited. He had also done uh, episodes of Mr. Novak, The Lieutenant, Gidget, and of course, much, much later in the 90s, Babylon 5, where he played the recurring character of Bester. I really wonder what it must have been like to be watching this on October 27th, 1967, and have this guy with a Russian accent. I think that must have seemed kind of crazy at that moment. I, I, as long as they weren't like thrown by just how awful that week was. It's terrible. But yeah, I yeah. mean, here we are in a space race with the Russians. And Steve, when this episode aired, it was, it was after the Apollo 1 fire. And Apollo 7 mm. had not gotten the Apollo program back on track. That wouldn't happen until 1968. So at this point, when this episode aired, the Russians were still kind of ahead of the Americans on the space race. And now here you have a Russian person aboard the bridge of the Enterprise. And yeah. by the way, no attention is drawn to the fact that he is Russian at all. He's just there. If anyone brought the Russian background to Chekhov, it was Chekhov himself. Yeah. Well, and I think what it's saying, I mean, I think it makes a really bold statement, which is, we're going to work this out. We're going to be friends. Absolutely. Captain, we are only registering on you. Captain Kirk. Lieutenant, can you hear me? And the fog is getting thicker. 
And Leon's getting larger. And they get their phasers out, and then we start to hear groaning and moaning, and then we get three witches. When I saw this episode for the first time as a kid, it was it was during uh, it was during the fall, so so it was it was already getting dark at like four thirty. So when this episode came on at seven o'clock at night, it was already dark outside, and I was watching this episode in my basement mm. by myself. And you hear the moaning and the groaning of these three witches, which may or may not be right out of Macbeth, most likely not based on their poetry. But those, <laughs> <laughs> it's not double, double toil and trouble. No, it ain't. Uh, it's leave it all or leave your heads. Uh, but those three witches, played by Rody Kogan. Gail Bonnie and Mary Esther Denver. Did you ever wonder what their names were? Now you know. I've been waiting to find out. So I will say I'll say at the beginning of the I literally have no idea what's going on in this episode. The more <laughs> I think about it, the more I don't understand what was happening. But right now we have these three creepy moaning witch projections warning Kirk to go away. Or you will meet your end. And Kirk says to Spock, Comment. It's very bad poetry, Captain. <laughs> I love it. And I love Kirk's response. A more useful comment, Mr. Spock. And what we hear is it wasn't real. That's useful. Yeah. So here's my question. And I'm going to ask this question of you many times. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Why do Sylvia and Karab, why are they doing this? Well, that is a great question. And and I, I think that's a question that I need to answer when we get deeper into this deep dive. Okay. Okay, but, but they, they, they do have, and by the way, this is the your question is the answer to another epiphany I can't wait. that I had about this episode that may or may not <laughs> help you appreciate this episode <laughs> okay. more than you already do or don't. Let me ask you a different question. Yeah, when they see when Kirk sees these witches, is he scared? No, agreed. I don't. I don't think. I think he's curious yeah that's weird but he's not scared agreed because right now a paramount importance to him is where are scott yeah. and sue what killed crewman jackson well and frankly kirk has seen a lot scarier stuff than three witch projections saying weird poetry that's true that um, absolutely true. and then we get hit by some wind and knocked around in a way that is not very convincing to me um <laughs> And then we see a castle and hear trumpets. Okay, this castle, by the way, the budget for the castle was $9,375. The final cost for this castle, because it was built on weekends, so there was overtime, was $13,416, which was uh, definitely one of the reasons why this episode went over budget. And I got to say, you know, Steve, for an episode that, that may be underwhelming, you cannot help but be impressed by the production design and the production values of this episode. That castle is really impressive. The way that the fog disappears. I think they handled the fog great. They did an amazing, amazing job with the fog. And I, I think that, that the production design of this episode is one of the things that makes this episode better than it, than it probably deserves to be given credit for, you know, even by me. <laughs> I, I, I kind of go like, because to me, it's all, well, how does it resonate emotionally? And even though uh, visually, I think they did a good job, I'm having no emotional reaction to it at all. 
And yes, Matt Jeffries, he did a great job designing it. And those guys working overtime, they did a great job building it. That doesn't mean I like it, you know? <laughs> um, but we head towards the castle. I think this is really slow. It takes a long time to sort of get to the castle. And at one point, as, as Kirk, Spock, and McCoy are, are advancing towards the castle, they walk a little down, and yeah. the fog is so thick that they almost disappear. I love it. Yeah, I think it's great. Yeah. Here, okay, you know what? I'm going to give a small spoiler to my feeling about it, which is that the reason I ask whether or not Kirk is scared by the witches is that, and the fact that he's really not, the whole idea of this is that this stuff is scary, but nothing is actually scary. And so, like, going slow is classic horror movie stuff. We're working, moving through a dark space. There's lots of fog. I can't see what's happening. And that would make you scared, except I'm not scared. When you watch the original Dracula from 1931, mm-hmm. it has that same tension building yes. buildup, you know, especially when, when he's still in you know, Transylvania. There are a lot of moments where there's no dialogue. Yes. It's just... Uh, it's mood. It's, right. a, it's establishing mood and atmosphere. And I think this episode actually does a really great job of that. And I think that's that's just a pet. Except, except, this is the difference. In Dracula, there are people in the movie who are scared. That's true. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Is that mm-hmm. I can't be scared unless one of the characters is scared. But if Kirk is looking at this going like, this looks really familiar. Is somebody playing... I think goes is uh, this no. They is, they they feel like this is a joke. Yeah, exactly. Well, and that's what makes this episode one of the many things that makes this episode like. Well, I don't understand what's going on here. So they go inside. We hear the hiss of a black cat, and Kirk does maybe have a slightly scared reaction. He's startled. Three witches. What appears to be a castle and a black cat. If we weren't missing two officers and a third one dead, I'd say someone was playing an elaborate trick or treat on us. Now, I love Spock's reaction. Spock goes, trick or treat. And Kirk looks at him and goes, yippee a natural. <laughs> I'll explain it one day. Now, that is Gene Kuhn. Gene Kuhn of course. added that line. But, well, here, and this is the thing. This is, but that means it's not scary. If they're joking like this, this isn't like I'm scared joking. This is just, this isn't scary. They're gone, Mr. DeSalle. Check for malfunctions. And this is where we get the first sort of pushback of what Chekhov's character is. I did, sir, as soon as it happened. They may have encountered a magnetic field or some other obstruction. Mr. Chekhov, recalibrate your sensors. If you need help. And uh, I love the look. You know, Chekhov is like, I can do it, sir. I'm not that green. Now, the thing is, Michael Barrier, so obviously familiar because he, this is his third episode of Star Trek. He was in Squire Gothos yep. and he was in The Side of Paradise. Right. So in both of those uh, shows, he was wearing a gold shirt. Now he's wearing a red one. Mm-hmm. So he was promoted to assistant chief engineer. Now, the plan at the time was to have someone in engineering during those moments when Kirk and Spock were not on the Enterprise and Scotty had to take command oh. so that there was someone in engineering who was capable and able while Scotty was on the bridge. But because the show was so focused on basically the big three, where the other four, you know, should sort of just get what they could, uh, he ultimately was not needed and Barrier just, you know, uh, left a series that he was never really officially a part of in the first place. Well, what's weird about it, and, uh, you know, and no disrespect to the actor, but they're characters that pop and they're characters that don't. And I don't think this out, and and I think... This is his worst performance in this episode. I, agree. I think he is so stiff. And frankly, Walter Koenig shines 
by comparison. The other thing I was going to say, this framing of who Chekhov is as the young guy, I'm not that green, the new kid on the Enterprise. I don't think there are other episodes that kind of hint at that, but I actually don't think that's who Chekhov is. Do you know what I mean? Like, that's not kind of how we because what one of the things that happens when you cast someone is when you have an idea of a part before you cast someone, that's the idea of the part. And then you put someone in the part and the, that's them now. And they adapt. And as you write for them, you adapt to who they really are. I frankly, do you know what I think that Chekhov was trying to be in the way they conceived the part is Wesley Crusher. That's how he's behaving in this episode. It's very much like Wesley Crusher. Oh, wow. Wow. Now, now uh, what I'll say about, about Walter Caney is that you know, we just went through a whole season where we saw our main characters find their way. Some of them found it right away, right away, like Shatner, obviously. I mean, he was born to play Kirk, and he had him down from the beginning. Some took uh, a little while longer, like the way Leonard Nimoy certainly took uh, a little bit yeah. to kind of really grasp at the character of Spock. But now you're introducing a new sort semi-regular series character to Star mm-hmm. Trek. So now it's Walter Koenig's turn to yeah. try and find his way as Chekhov. And I think he does that. Rather quickly, I mean, you know, when you get to episodes like Amok Time and and Who Mourns for Adonais, where he was featured pretty prominently, yeah. that that by by that point, you know, he had already kind of had him down. It'll be interesting. You know, it's so funny because I've never pl- paid the attention to Chekhov that I did to Spock, but now that I'm thinking about it, it's going to be really interesting as we go forward in production order. Going, what are the signposts of like, oh, there he's starting to get it. That's that's who Chekhov's going to yeah, become. Totally, uh-huh. that's going to be fun to do. Um, we're back down on the planet. We have a door slam behind them that's sort of creepy, and we're hearing very dramatic music. This is all new score, right? That's right, all new score. Um, and we see a cat running in the shadows in the background, and the cat makes noise, and they fall down through some trap door, and they are all unconscious on the rubble. And the camera tilts up to reveal the cat standing over them. But it also it also tilts back. Because you just saw the three of them lying on the floor. Mm-hmm. So there's another shot where they're, it looks like they're lying, mm-hmm. but they're actually standing in the dungeon. Oh, yeah, that's and true. It's, it's a really, really it's a great cool choice. Edit. Now, you know, of course, as you know, most of uh, most of Star Trek was filmed on stages 9 and 10. Stage 9 was where they had the Enterprise sets. Stage 10 is where they built everything else, basically the planets or other sets. But in this case, a temporary... Star Trek stage was built on stage eight, and that's where they filmed the scenes in the dungeon and then the corridor outside of the dungeon, which they started filming on day four. Dungeons, curses, skeletons and iron maidens, they're all Earth manifestations. Here's something that I, I still cl- I chuckle when I see it. So, you know, they're all, they're all there in the dungeon, you know, they're all coming too. And, and Kirk and Spock are talking first, mm-hmm. and Kirk to- turns to talk to McCoy, and he goes, "Bones, uh, Doc." <laughs> it's one of the best. It's the, yeah. it's great. It's great because there's that skeleton hanging there. Yeah, the bones are yeah. right there. <laughs> He's a uh, Doc. Could this be an Earth parallel development of some sort? Which is something we've run across before in Star Trek. None of this parallels any human development. It's more like a human nightmare. Okay, so another question. So we've heard that this is like not any real time in Earth. This is pulled out of the what scares us in our subconscious. Where did Sylvia and Korob get this these images? All right, Steve, I was going to wait. 
Okay. I was going to wait for this epiphany about this episode. All right. Because you're asking absolutely valid questions, and I can't answer them without revealing the other epiphany I had about Cat's Paw. Okay. So you're right to ask, where the heck did Korob and Sylvia get this image of a castle and a dungeon and this grand room that we're soon going to see? I think I have a guess of where you're going. Okay. Where did... Are you ready? Mm Mm-hmm. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. Where did... Are you ready? I'm ready. Where did Trelane get all these images? Oh, you're not going where I thought you were going. Okay. I, I, I'm i going to tell you when I got the epiphany. But since you're asking these right questions, and I don't want to hold it any longer, I saw Catspaw as the Squire of Gothos of Season 2. Yes, I totally see that connection. There are so many similarities, just like Trelane. And, you know, we're going to get into more of this as we go along, but Korob and Sylvia have incredible powers. Mm-hmm. They read humans a little wrong, like mm-hmm. just like Trelane thought, like, this is, this is what, what you like. This is, and then Kirk says, actually, you know, you're thinking of, a, of an Earth from 900 years past. Sylvia and Korob have gotten it wrong, too, because they're pulling images of Halloween out of their heads, not actual Earth stuff. But also, Korob and Sylvia, like Trelane, is seduced by power. Mm-hmm. And seduced by emotion. Yes. Because just like... 100%. I agree with all this. Yeah. Just like Trelane. Like he wanted to feel the rush of emotion. Yeah. Like when he does the chase during the most dangerous game towards the end of the Squire of Gothos. And they both use devices as the yep. source of their powers. Yep. We don't know the name of Trelane's device, but we know that the name of the device that Carl and Sylvia use is the transmuter. Well, and they both say that the device isn't the source of the power, but it is some mechanism that helps them focus. Part of a yeah. bigger thing. Yeah. Right. When Kirk shut out the mirror in the Squire of Gothos and, and, uh, and Trelane says, did you think that was the only instrument at yeah. my command? So there are so many similarities between the Squire of Gothos and Catspaw. And I think a lot of the motivations that Korob and Sylvia have are very similar to the motivations that Trelane had. I agree. Now, Trelane... Was, was a spoiled brat. He was a big kid. And he was playing with the Enterprise crew like they were they were Tinker Toys. Yes. Uh, that's not what Korob and Sylvia are after. They need Kirk and humans more than Trelane needed Kirk in, in, in Squire Gothos. It was more out for amusement in Squire Gothos. And this is all more of a, uh, there is a, there's a, a sustenance that Korob and Sylvia have that that they that they're getting out of being around humans. Now, I still don't think this is a perfect episode by any by any means. Uh, I still have issues with it too. But off all these years, Steve, of watching this episode, I never made the connection between Cat's Paw and the Squire of Gothos until I sat down for my deep dive of Enterprise. There's episode. definitely some DNA that they share. There are things about what they need from the crew of the Enterprise that I want to come back to later on. But you have not answered my question. What is your question? My question is, where, why are we in a castle? Where did they get these images? Well, that's... Because Trelane got it by looking literally through a telescope from 900 light years away and was looking at the past. Now, okay. Now, here's, here's the question. We don't know what happened on Pyrus 7 before Kirk, Spock, and McCoy beamed down. Like, we don't know which version... 
of Sylvia and Korob that Scotty and Sulu and Jackson saw? Did they see them in human form? Did they see them in their natural form that we see at the end of the episode? Do we see them in another form? Did they have another form? And did they look into the minds of Jackson and Scotty and Sulu and go, oh, wait a minute. Let's try something else here. And that's where they got the image of the castle. So out of that, so they, I think they, they read the minds of Scotty and Sulu and Jackson, and that's where they got these images. And that's why Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, that's why they beamed out to these images. So I think that's probably likely because and I was thinking as you were, when, remember when I, you said, here's my epiphany, I said, oh, wait, I think I know where you're going. I didn't think you were going to Trelane. What I thought you were going to is that while it doesn't make any sense that they got these images out of Kirk's brain, because the, and they, he has no response to them like they're important images. If, if this was something important in your subconscious and you were suddenly there, you would have a reaction to it. That's not what happened with Kirk. Well, Scotty and Scotty, who is from Scotland, probably grew up around castles and things like that. And what is Sulu obsessed with? Antiquity and sword fighting and things like that. So maybe, maybe, and I think it's a stretch. We could say that oh. They looked into Scotty and Sulu's subconscious and came up with some of this stuff. Here's why I agree with that. Because in addition to, to your absolutely accurate assessment of Sulu's subconscious, in Wolf and the Fold, mm. the beginning of Wolf and the Fold, which actually comes obviously later in this season, yeah. the beginning and the teaser part of the episode, Scotty asks the, 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 the dancer, says, do you want to go for a walk? It's a fine, foggy night. Yeah. Tonight, like in Aberdeen. Yeah. And the outside of Argelius mm. looks a lot like because of the Argelius is very foggy. Okay. okay. Just like what we see in Cat's Ball. And the that image that Scotty has of Aberdeen was in his head. And that was where Sylvia and Korob sort of picked up a lot of that stuff. Um, I still have more questions. We will get to them as we go along. <laughs> but I like this. I think the Scotty Sulu thing, I think I think it's a stretch. But I do think we could say that that's where it comes from. Okay. I'm um, down with that. Yes. Um, and as we're talking, the door opens and in walks Sulu and Scotty. And at first, we're thrilled to see them. Scotty. Sulu. And then they do not respond. Scotty. Put down the phaser. Scotty. It, it was Dorothy Fontana's idea to have Scotty and Sulu under Sylvia's control. In the earlier versions, they were, there were two crew members named Jackson and Saunders who were under the trance of Sylvia and Cora because it was in the earlier version that Sulu died. So it was Dorothy Fontana's idea, like, like, wait a minute, we're going to bring in these two unknown crew members. It's not going to mean anything to the viewer that these right. mysterious crew members are holding uh, Kirk, Spock, and McCoy hostage. Let's make them people we know. And I think that she was smart 100%. to make it Scotty. And totally. Sue. And when you're watching, if you're looking closely at Scotty holding the phaser, you see that he is missing a finger. Oh, one of the few times you get to see that. One of the few times you get to see this. So he was wounded. By I, again, Jimmy Dewan, like fought in World War II, fought in D-Day, but he was wounded by friendly fire and hit in the chest and the leg and the right hand. Wow! And he still had the the strength to be the chief engineer of the Starship Enterprise. They appear to be drugged. 
Her eyes hardly blink at all. Neither did Jackson just before he collapsed. And they walk up sort of zombie-like and start to unlock our people. They're walking out with them. And then just as they go out, and as we knew that they would, Kirk feigns a little weakness and then is on the attack. And right in the middle of the attack, we hear the word stop. Stop. And we are somewhere else. And there is this bald guy standing in front of them. And that is Korob. Played by Theodore Marcus. On TV, he was on shows like Have Gun, Will Travel, Wagon Train, Peter Gunn, Perry Mason, The Twilight Zone, The Untouchables, Batman, which is where I remember him, and The Monkees. But he also was in some movies. He was in The Cincinnati Kid, Hmm. and he was in the Elvis movie, Harem Scarum. (laughs) Now, this episode aired on October 27th, 1967. One month later, on November 29th, 1967, Theodore Marcuse was killed in a car accident at age 47. Oh, wow. Whoever you are, you've proven your skill at creating illusion. Now, I want to know why and what you've done to my men. Korob's outfit, if that looks familiar to some viewers when this episode aired in October of 1967, that is because this outfit was previously worn by the television legend... Bob Denver in Gilligan's Island. Oh my God, really? <laughs> On the episode Lovely Secret Admirer. Which are... <laughs> Star Trek was uh, used to hand me down from Gilligan's Island, That's which hilarious. I think is hilarious. That episode aired in January of 1967. But uh, if you were really in tune and you know the sort of person who nitpicks every little thing, you would know that that after came from Gilligan's that Island. That is hilarious. Where did your race get this ridiculous predilection for resistance. Hmm? You examine any object, you you question everything. Is it not enough to accept what is? Not when one of my men is dead because of it and two others turn into mindless... Oh, not mindless. These two are merely controlled, Captain Kirk. Yeah, he knows his name. He knows your name, dude. (laughs) Yeah. I love Um, that look that Kirk gives him, like, you know me? (laughs) And one thing that we notice is as he is talking, he is also petting the black cat. Who are you? Why did you bring us here? My name is Korob, and as for bringing you here, it was you, quite contrarily, insisted upon coming. You were warned to stay away. Well, he was warned to stay away, but he's not going to leave his two potentially surviving crew members alone on the planet. Of course he's going to go down and check him out. Why was he warned to stay away? Was he, he was warned to stay away by dead crewman Jackson. Okay. Right. Why? But before that, yeah, that's the thing I don't understand. No, this is what I'm saying. This, you're right. Understand. You're right. Like, like, why? Okay, so if Korob and Sylvia need humans. Which, again, why do they need humans? Because, well, I mean, I, I think I think Sylvia kind of says why she needs them. She, yes, but that's not their mission. She she is breaking from the mission by saying, "I want sensation oh, right, and all this right, stuff." Right. She she gets really into the sensation of it. She like like that that's well, that's the part that seduces her. But we never find out why they actually wanted these humans. And if you wanted the humans, why are you trying to scare them? I agree. And why are you trying to keep them away? Like like why? Okay, if they came to, if they came here from the Andromeda Galaxy, and like, what was their purpose? What did they want? You know, and the Enterprise is on its mission to explore strange new worlds. You know, Pyrus 7 was definitely a doozy in terms of strange, new, uh, and a world. But, sure. Uh, but yeah, I, you're right. Like, 
but the motive is on sh- very, very shaky ground. Because, like, you bring up the Trelane thing. Trelane's motive is really clear. He's a kid. He wants to play with toys. They stimulate him. He's enjoying that. T- totally get it. Absolutely. This, not so much. <laughs> um, and and what's interesting is he asks, like, why all this mumbo jumbo? Mumbo jumbo. And then the cat talks to Korob. Oh. <laughs> oh, no, I assure you it was not that, Captain. Which, by the way, this is not going to be the last talking cat we have in Star Trek. We're going to have one in Assignment Earth. Oh, that's right. Yes. Yeah. And that and Assignment Earth, a talking cat that turns into a woman. Yep. Yep. Exactly the same thing. And then the cat interrupts again. Oh, I, I'm, I'm told that I've been an inattentive host, gentlemen. You will join me for something to refresh yourselves. Again, I go, I don't understand why Sylvia is being a cat at this moment. I don't understand why Sylvia is saying that you should, that I forgot myself and I'm not being a good host. Why is any of the, why is Sylvia doing any of these things? It doesn't. I, I agree with you. I mean, by this point, you know, the, the fact that they, that Corob and Sylvia had established this atmosphere of a, of, of a basically Halloween. Yeah. That this was just part of it, that the black cat was part of the lore of Halloween that they got out of the minds of Sulu. And, sure. But, Scotty. but again, it's like to what per, and, and this is the thing here. Here is the difference between this and the alternative factor for me. Visually, it's really good. I like the other performances are good. Like there's total there's more interesting things happening in this episode, but I'm not sure that it makes any more sense. Maybe it makes a little bit more sense. I agree with you. Yeah. I mean, when you really, really break it down, like what what do Carl and Sylvia really want? Like what yep. was their mission? And and this thing about Korob telling Kirk, well, you were warned to stay away. But we weren't warned to stay away before you killed one of my guys and took two others. And why kill them and why take them? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, it, it's one of the like a fundamental thing of screenwriting when you have a bad guy is the bad guy's plan should make sense, even if the bad guy never gets to do their plan. And the example I would always use is Die Hard. Hans has a plan. And if John McClane doesn't show up, Hans steals the bearer bonds and he escapes in the ambulances because his plan has all worked out. It all makes sense. He doesn't get to do his plan because John McClane shows up, you know, here and generally in screenwriting in this kind of a story, you have to start with the bad guys and they really didn't, you know? Um, And we find out some sense that they can read minds to some degree. I do not create the legend captain. I merely report it. You are the uh, different one, Mr. Spark. You do not think like the others. There are no colors to your patterns of logic. There's only black and white. He doesn't believe in trick or treat. Yep. <laughs> I love that. I don't understand yeah. that reference. <laughs> um, what's interesting, his line is interesting. I do not understand that reference. Therefore, it also is of no importance. Which is weird because he sort of says, because the first thing he says when we show up is, why don't you just accept what's around you? And now he is doing that. He is not questioning the trick-or-treat reference. He just goes, I don't understand. It has no importance. I, I, but see, Trelane, I, I like that Trelane was like, oh, dear, have I made an error in time? Yeah. How fallible of me. So you're right. Trelane has a, like, he has a motive. There's a reason mm-hmm. for all of this. In this episode, the reason, the foundation for it just does not, it's, it's not sustainable. Right. I agree with you. Gentlemen, I can be most hospitable. 
and he waves his magic wand and there's food and he invites them to sit down. Again, this is where I thought of Trelane, by the way. Yeah, this is this is where I had the epiphany. Because he says to McCoy, try the wine, you'll find it's excellent, which is exactly what Trelane does and the wine had no flavor. Exactly. You know? But this is the moment I was waiting to get to where I was going to tell you that this is like the Squire Gothos what, of season two. What I wonder is they never try it. Would the wine have been excellent? Yeah, would the food have had any taste? Yeah. Right, that's a good point. Well, because clearly, wherever they got these images of Halloween and stuff, they didn't get a good read. They didn't really understand what they... They created something, but didn't really understand it. So Uh, how could uh. they have the wine have good flavor? You'll find us most uncooperative, unless you start explaining yourself. Hopefully, I can change that attitude. And waves the wand, and there, the plates are now filled with jewels. And I love just that, that Kirk is like... We don't. This these these mean nothing to us, because the idea of currency doesn't mean anything in this area of the twenty third century. Well, this is the very first, I think, of the direction that Star Trek is going to go. That is, prob- ends up being far more problematic than it should be. Which is how does the economy of Star Trek work? Exactly. You know, yeah. because they because because the, in Mud's Women, in The Devil in the Dark, in all sorts of places, we talk about money. Mm-hmm, there mm-hmm. is such a thing as money. People are working for profit. Yeah, talk about like uh, uh, in, in Devil in the Dark when Kirk is telling uh, at the uh, at the end about the deal a, with the Horda being embarrassingly rich. Yeah, and so mm-hmm. now this is the first one we're kind of saying maybe that's not the case. And I have no problem with their having some different economy in Star Trek. They just never figured out what it was. That's a good point. You know, right. and it had, and so what happened was they took a something, an economy that made sense, and replaced it with something that didn't make sense. <laughs> <Yeah>. You know, <laughs> um, but these jewels are clearly not a temptation. By the way, they're not a temptation for me. They look really fake. Oh, they totally look fake. They look real. And the, and the mistake they made was they have giant, huge jewels. It's really hard to make those look good. A fortune of them for each of you. If you leave here without further inquiry. Which means he's still trying to get rid of them. But, but why? But why? Right. Um, yeah, what, why, why, were they, why did he warn them to stay away? Like, what are they after? Why are they here? Yeah, no, it, it, I, I'm literally... And what's funny is I went back and rewatched a couple of scenes to see if I had missed an explanation of what they want. And I don't think there is one. And this is very much, again, it's like Trelane... Oh, perhaps I have made a, a small mistake. Nevertheless, you have passed the tests. What's the test? <laughs> yeah. Why were they testing them? So did you really want us to stay away? <laughs> or, yeah. Or it's okay that we're here now because we passed it. What was the test? Well, and like, did you want me to say no to taking the jewels? And that's now that you know I'm greedy, I'm not greedy, I've passed the test. But why? <laughs> what is it you're trying to get? Yeah, I feel like they're, I feel like. There, there should have been another rewrite here. <laughs> but you were warned to stay away, and yet you came to save your comrades. That proves loyalty. Your bravery was tested, and you did not frighten. And despite my failure with these bright baubles, I perceive that you cannot be bribed. In many ways, you are quite admirable. Now, this is implying that they wanted people with these positive qualities to do something, but we don't know what that something is. Um, and in particular, why kill Jackson? Like if the goal was to get, we want to get people with admirable qualities because we want to do something, which we never explain. Why kill a dude? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why kill Jackson? Well, and, and there's a, there, it's, it's, this is definitely a wanting to have your cake and eat, and eat it too and failing. 
where like, oh, we want a scary opening where there's a dead guy with a warning voice that comes out of his mouth. That'll be really creepy. But but see, this does actually raise the stakes a little over over Squire Agathos because oh, totally. Troy never killed anybody. Totally. Totally. But it doesn't make sense. So it ends up working against you later yeah. on. Right, go at once, yes. Part of me is also going, what's the cat saying? Why did the cat leave? Why was she not Sylvia from the beginning? That's a great question. Why, like, why have Sylvia as the cat in the beginning when, when Kirk, Spock, and McCoy first get to the castle? Yeah. Like, what was the purpose of that? Why is Sylvia hiding? Well, Sylvia is not hiding anymore. Yep, she shows up. She shows up. She walks in the door. Sylvia, played by Antoinette Bauer, who was 35 when she made this episode. She was on TV shows like Have Gun, Will Travel, Wagon Train, Thriller, Perry Mason, Mannix, and Mission Impossible. On film, you could see her as Mrs. Hammond in the 1980 horror classic Prom Night. Oh, Wow, interesting. Yeah, good movie. Um, much scarier, probably, than Cat's Paw. <laughs> you like to think of yourselves as complex creatures, but you're flawed. One gains admittance to your minds through many levels. And while she's saying this whole thing, she is playing with her necklace. There are unguarded entrances to any human mind. What's the deal with the necklace? So the necklace, like Ed, she was sort of it was sort of putting McCoy into a trance. I, I don't know. The the necklace, like Spock makes a comment about uh telepathy. But was the necklace the source of her power? Like did the necklace tie into the transmuter? Like this is there seems to be an implication that the necklace is like the transmuter, but it clearly isn't like the transmuter because there's only one transmuter. That becomes very clear. Right, the later transmuter on. was the transmuter. Right. And while this is happening, Kirk Tosses the jewels at Scotty, grabs his phaser, and now he's got a phaser on them, says... Now I want the rest of our weapons and our equipment. I want some answers. Put that weapon down. It seems so foolish of you to insist on demonstrations. And she pulls out the Enterprise, a little Enterprise on a necklace chain, you know? I love that mini Enterprise. Every time I do watch this episode, I think... Man, I, w- I would love to have like kept that. That prop has got to have been auctioned at some thing for... Well, it. I'll tell you where it ends up oh, in, in yeah. a minute. Okay. In the mythology of your race, this is called sympathetic magic. Jackson, the crew member who returned to the ship, I made an image of him. In the essence of my thoughts, the image was Jackson. And when I killed the image and knew that it was dead... He died. That's voodoo. Totally voodoo. And I like that dialogue. I think that's a very, I like the, in the essence of my thoughts, the image was Jackson. And she, and she sold it. Yeah, totally. I think it's great. I also think it's weird that her magic powers comes from a thing that she got from them. Do you know what I mean? Like, she, but, but it's fine. I, and I think it's really cool. Now, signal your ship. It's like an errand of mercy where they go call your ship mm-hmm. and she holds that little enterprise over a candle. And then we go to the bridge of the enterprise where it is burning up. Everyone is sweating and perspiring. Mm-hmm. Reading, mister. It's up 60 degrees in the past 30 seconds. And the last image of act two is of on a sweating, heavily wigged <laughs> Chekhov staring into the sensor in, in fear. Well, it's so funny. This is just dumb. But I always thought like they, they were heating up the exterior of the Enterprise, I guess, because the candle was underneath the exterior. But then I went, 
No, I think I think it's the inside of the enterprise that's heating up. Well, well, the enterprise should. I mean, it's a pretty powerful starship. Yeah. You know, the only other time we ever saw it get really, really hot inside was when they were chasing the ship from Deneva yeah. in the beginning of Operation Annihilate, and it got really close to the star. But, but shouldn't the Enterprise be powerful enough to stay cool when it gets closer to solar activity? I have to say. Well, that's why I, go, that's why I suddenly went, oh, because if you said the, the whole of the Enterprise went up 60 degrees, well, that's not that much. But if you're inside a room that suddenly went up 60 degrees. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. it's inside. The that, interior rose yeah. 60 degrees. This is a very silly little thing to explore, but welcome to Enterprise Welcome incidents. to Enterprise Incidents. Um, <laughs> and that, of course, is the end of Act 2. And we're back in Act 3. And Kirk grabs Sylvia's hand and pulls the Enterprise away from the candle and says, you've won. Yeah, he puts his phaser down, takes the phaser from Spock and surrenders. And she says, your ship is safe. You've seen something of our science now. Now tell us about yours. I'd rather know more about yours. You call it magic, you call it science. It seems to be unrelated to both of them. I don't think that line makes any sense. I don't know what it means to be unrelated to both of them. He's seen all sorts of amazing science, you know, with Trelane being an example. Yeah. Doing stuff like this. He's seen magic things, you know, with Charlie X and with all sorts of other people. And he's seen technology that doesn't look anything like his. So I don't think this idea that this doesn't look like magic or science. Yeah, I don't yeah. Think it makes no, sense. I agree. But you seem to do with your mind what we do with tools. Again, it's right out of Squire of Gothos. Um, some of the dialogue almost is exactly out of yeah, Squire of Gothos. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah. Um, I'm surprised, like, isn't that weird? Like, you know, all these years, I never made that connection until now. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's funny. You and I both made this for different points and at different for different reasons, but we both saw the same the stuff. And what's interesting at this point is Korob starts to get into the conversation. He goes, "Yes, we can change the molecular." Korob, you talk too much. And there's a really weird close-up of him that's very jarring. Yeah, he's almost looking right at camera, which is a very unusual thing to do. It's a close-up. It's in a wide-angle lens, almost a fisheye, so the 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 the. Space, space is, is really distorted. Yeah, yep. it is a it is unlike any other shot so far in Star Trek. Mm, no, I agree yeah. with you. You kept Scott and Sulu as cat's paws to lure us down here. I just want to point out that cat's paw is a term that nobody knows. Okay, and cat's no, paw. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, because cat's paw is a term that means a dupe or a person used by another to do unlawful work. I think it is weird to use a term. But did you know that term? No, not before I got into it with this episode i yeah. did not I, I think it's really weird to title an episode with a term where nobody knows what that term is and then have someone reference the term that nobody knows what the term is to explain what's going on in the episode when the episode doesn't quite make sense <laughs> <laughs> um, how'd you know we'd come oh we didn't have to know they knew and again it goes to like okay well why do you i mean it they could have just called up and said hey guys do you want to come down and talk <laughs> like we don't quite understand i still don't understand or i'll stop hitting it okay <laughs> Enough of this. You will tell us what we want to know. What do they want to know? What do they, what, what do they want to know? They literally no, have right. not asked them a question. It's too late for threats. You let me contact the ship. How long do you think it'll be before a search party arrives? And then Corb says, some time, Captain. Quite some time. So then he uses the transmuter to put a block around the mini Enterprise. And by the way, that Enterprise with the block around it is at the Smithsonian Air wow. and Space Museum. Nice. So that's, you asked where it was. Like they, they, they filmed the scene with the little Enterprise over the flame, over the candle, and then they had it encased 
And ever since oh, that it's the moment, same one. It's the same one. Yeah, they didn't build two separate things. Interesting. So, but, so but, let me just say one of the great things, Scott, about doing the show with you is that I can ask a ridiculously bizarre question, and nine times out of ten, you're going to give me an answer. <laughs> That's what I'm here for. Yeah. That's what we do here on Enterprise Incidents. Yeah. But it was at this moment, I have to say, when Cora puts the force field around, you know, the little block around mm-hmm. the little Enterprise, which puts the force field around the ship itself. So we are seeing, we are seeing Carb and Sylvia display incredible powers. Yes. How many times have we seen this now? Many. Where we've seen powers that are greater than that of the Enterprise. We've seen this with, obviously, Troyne, whose source also came from the machine. Right. But we also saw this with the Thacians, mm-hmm. with the Metrons, with mm-hmm. the Organians. Yep. And how we have another situation, regardless of the fact that the foundation for their motive is practically non-existent. Yes. It is another another alien species that commands great power. And what do we always say about great power going back to where no man has gone before? Of all else, a God needs compassion? Absolute power corrupts, oh, corrupts absolutely. absolutely. As soon as you said, what do we say about great power? All I could hear was it comes great responsibility. Yep. <laughs> but like, that's not Star Trek. <laughs> that's Spider-Man. Yeah. <laughs> and she says, take them to their cell. And Scotty gets the phaser and he starts leading everyone off, including Bones. And she says, the doctor will stay. Oh, that's not a good sign. Your turn will be next, Captain. It makes little difference. And we're back on the Enterprise. And all of these cuts back to the Enterprise about them. We're going to do something to break out of these force fields. They're almost all totally useless. You know, they, they exist because they are, we need to check back in with the Enterprise. Right, exactly. But they end up having no effect on the show at all. I, I, and I do agree with you. I think that of the three performances that Michael Barrier gave us to sell, this one is, is his weakest. He's so stiff. Well, and frankly, part of it is what he's been given to do, is that he had a very clear motivation in Squire of Gothos, is that who he was. He was aggressive. He was impatient. Yeah. You know, he a hothead. Was, yeah. And here he's just saying the lines that aren't that great, including his line here, which is, We can't break it, but I'll bet you credits to Navy Beans we can put a dent in it. Yeah. yeah that yeah. is a line that is so anachronistic. It's kind of anachronistic in 1967. You know, it is a World War II line. Yeah, for sure. We're back in the dungeon. I love that during this discussion, Spock calls Captain Kirk Jim. Yeah. You know, it's it's always interesting when you look at the moments where Spock breaks down the structure of command to refer to Kirk as Jim instead of Captain. And it's it's a vulnerable moment. It's subtle. Yeah. Like when he says to, when they're looking at the tricorder and sitting on the edge of forever and says, we must stop him, Jim. But he refers to Kirk as Jim here. And it's, I mean, it doesn't have the same power as, as City. Yeah. But I, it's, it, I, like, I like the little moments like that. You know what just occurred to me, and this is a totally minor part point, but um, sometimes I call you Scott and sometimes I, call, I go, you know, I'll write you and say, hey, Mance, what's up? Or I'll say, hey, or, you know. Something like that. I don't generally put a lot of thought into which one I use. Spock does. Yes, he does. He has chosen to say Jim mm-hmm. or to say Captain. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, his brain is not capable of just saying it one way or another. There mm-hmm. is a reason that he does it. There's does a reason it. he there's yeah. a reason when he chooses to use the word Jim. Yeah. Jim. All these things that we've seen. 
to an Earthman like yourself, they must seem quite familiar. And then Kirk says, I couldn't quite hear what he says. He says, I think, startled, not rational. Hmm. And I go like, are you saying you were startled? Which he kind of was when he heard the cat hiss at the very beginning. I refer you to the psychological theory of the racial subconscious. The universal myths, symbols, ghosts, witches, you mean, and dungeons, and castles, and black cats. They all belong to the twilight world of consciousness. So first of all, what I think he's kind of referencing is the idea of the Jungian subconscious or the universal subconscious. Um, I think I think this is a weird not I'm gonna get, not gonna get into Jung and I wouldn't be really capable of doing it if I wanted to, but like the idea that these images are part of a racial subconscious is really weird and I don't think it quite works. And in the re part of the reason is Kirk's not scared of it. Mm, yeah, you know what I mean. Not scared. Like so, the idea that this is part of some universal subconscious, you know, doesn't quite work. Well, and this is why I think they should have made the choice to make this scary. And maybe they were trying to make it scary, but if they were, then Shatner's performance is ruining it. Yeah, I don't know how scary they were trying to make it. I think they were trying to establish, of uh, 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 obviously a setting, but by not taking it seriously by by not being scared by it we're establishing that kirk especially kirk is one step ahead of and i think that shows intelligence and that shows strength yeah you know on his part uh i don't think that's that has to do with his performance i don't think that kirk would be scared by this no i i agree i think that's why i think we're kind of saying the same thing is that yeah. if they wanted it to be scary that they should have come up with stuff that scared Kirk and then Shatner should have been scared, you know, but that's not what they're, they're kind of trying to do both at the same time. Isn't this, cause the, the next line they say, Korob seemed quite puzzled by your reaction to the environment he'd provided. He expected me to react as overall normal. Trelane expected them to react like it was all normal because he didn't realize he had looked at the wrong time. But did they think that this is the, Kirk world or did they create a world that they thought would scare Kirk? Those aren't the same things. Right now, it's a good point. You know, like did they create this world to scare Kirk Spock and McCoy? Not that Spock would get scared. Well, and, and then why would they expect them to react like it was normal if they were trying to create something that was scary? But maybe they were just trying to create something and that was the image that they got out of the minds of Scotty and Sulu. And, uh, you know, for whatever reason, that was the image. That was the prominent image. But I don't know if that they were deliberately trying to use that to scare them. But maybe they were. I don't know. That's or a great or maybe the producers looked at the broadcast schedule and saw they had an episode coming out four days before Halloween and said, oh, well, let's do some Halloween stuff, like some castles and some black cats. Well, when the pitch was given, the producer said, this is perfect. We got to air this during Halloween. So it was, it was produced like I said, as a holiday special for Halloween. The other thing that comes out as they're discussing is they come out the fact that she had said creatures like yourselves. And I like, by the way, that as they're speculating on what kind of creatures they are, Kirk looks over at the skeleton that's hanging next to him. That's another fun use of the skeleton. But this, by the way, this conversation between Kirk and Spock, where they're trying to deduce what's happening, reminds me of the conversation in the Squire of Gothos between Kirk, Spock, and McCoy right before Kirk challenges Troy into a duel. Mm -hmm. What it reminded me of is in Return of the Archons, where they say, hey, we can't let this society stand. And they're in literally in a dungeon, totally powerless, deciding they're going to take out a whole planet. And here they're doing the same thing. They say, 
And I don't like hostile strangers showing such an acute interest in our galaxy, our world, Spock. Not at all like friendly visitors. We're going to have to stop them. Cold. But at the moment, <laughs> they look at the hands and the wrists, and then the door opens, and now McCoy is one of the zombie people. And I like Kirk's response. Ah, oh, bones. And I like that McCoy kind of throws Kirk. Yeah, you know? yeah, and uh, Kirk kind of spins around like he's going to sock him. Yeah. So after Scotty and Sulu and now McCoy go to extract Kirk and Spock from the dungeon, we cut back to the main, the grand room right. with Sylvia and Cora. And Sylvia and Cora, as we've we've seen from a hinted scene prior, they are not on the same page with right. us. And this was actually Dorothy Fontana's idea to add conflict between Sylvia and Cora. Because in just a short while, we're going to see Korob go to save mm-hmm. Kirk and Spock from the dungeon. And there has to be a reason for this change, which is why Fontana added the, the conflict so that we could see that Korob and Sylvia were not getting along. They did not have the same, the same plan in mind. And it, but it, again, it highlights so specific. I think, I think the idea is totally right. That is exactly what you have to do to split between the two. They don't have the same plan. And even the idea that Sylvia, which she goes into, is now obsessed with the sensations she gets from this new body, which is something we see in later episodes of Star Trek. That's okay. But starting with... Forget what we were sent here for. What were they sent here for? Right, we don't even know. I forget nothing. I'm not a puppet, Carob, like you. You're a traitor. I have no idea what they're talking about. Cruel. Torture our specimens. And that, too, is a new sensation. I find it stimulating that's where that's where they sort of went off on different paths she likes the sensation that that she's getting from from being around people humans well and and specifically torturing them um and by the way he calls them specimens at this point which again kind of goes like okay is this a scientific experiment they're running but we never pursue that that doesn't seem to be what's going on there's a reference here that korob makes to the old ones Oh, yeah. We have a duty to the old ones. Mm. This episode is written by Robert Block. The old ones. The old ones. Right. The ones who made us. The ones from What a Little Girl's Made Of. So so then, like, when I'm watching this and I hear hear Korob say about the old ones, and it's the same writer, and I was trying to... I was trying to connect what our little girls made of to Cat's Paw, but... Uh, yeah, there's no connection. There's no connection. No, I, I was going to say, is Scott going to make a connection here? Um, here's what's weird, too. Korob has the transmuter. Sylvia is saying, I could crush you like a bug. You're a weak fool. But maybe, but Sylvia was able to access the the, the power of the transmuter with that, that pendant that she had around her neck. It doesn't make sense. Yes, I think they're kind of doing something like that, but... If this thing is really that powerful, why is Korab so weak? He's weak-minded. I think he's just weak-minded. He's more than weak-minded. As we go a little further, he doesn't do. He doesn't able to do very much. So, uh, Kirk enters under guard. What now? You wave your magic wand and destroy my mind too. There's no real damage to the mind, Captain. Simply a drain of knowledge and will. You don't call that damage? Why should I? You'd know. You had compassion. A woman should have compassion. But I forget you're not a woman. This is, again, I would say this is the thing we've seen with Kirk before, is looking for and exploiting what he perceives as a weakness. And he does exploit it when he starts to move in and seduce her. 
Yeah. She is clearly stimulated by emotion, but she's never been touched like that by a man. And that is something that really, really stimulates her. So what's interesting, I, th I think this came up in one of the episodes, maybe it was Conscious of the King, I don't remember, but this is where it's really happening, is there, there is a classic Hollywood trope of the woman having to seduce the bad guy in order to escape, in order to get an advantage, in order to get information. That is just over and over again to the point where it's fairly, it is a fairly sexist cliche and certainly you know one that I would recommend screenwriters should avoid. But in Star Trek, it's Kirk. It's the dude that is doing this, and he does it many, many times throughout the show. And this is one of them. He has no problem using his sexuality to get an advantage. Oh, absolutely not. Kirk, uh, the, obviously this is not the first time Kirk has used a woman to mm -hmm. get information. Uh, I mean, some one way, like with, with Lenore Caridian, it mm -hmm. was sexual. Um, and what are little girls made of? He does it, it. right? Uh, in in Miri, it's it's not uh, obviously it's not sexual. It's but it's just you know he's using his charm. Kim Darby finds it sexual. Kim Darby, she's had definitely attracted to him. Yeah, yeah, uh, for sure. But I think Kirk knows what his strengths are, and here is a woman who is stimulated by emotion, and Kirk is introducing a whole new one to mm -hmm. her that weakens her. Yep, and she is obviously excited. She's obviously drawn to him and she's trying to make a deal there. And, and what's interesting too, is there's something about Kirk, like why she had no trouble, you know, controlling the other guys, but she doesn't want that for Kirk. You seem to need us. Why? Because you have knowledge, which I lack, but where our abilities put together. Now, again, I don't know what that means or what she's planning or what she actually wants, but he is definitely moving in on her. He touches her shoulder. He touches her face. What happens if I go along? Then everything would be ours together. I've never conceived of the idea of togetherness before. It excites me. You excite me. Why? For the same reasons you excite me. You're a very beautiful woman. And there's a big kiss. And then she pulls away and she says, You find me beautiful, but I can be many women. And then we get some transformations. Yeah, I mean, look, it's a, it's fun. It's a fun scene, and uh, you can see that she's really she's becoming more vulnerable with Kirk because she she is excited by the the sensation, the the attraction, the physical, uh, you know, sex almost. And the three women that she transforms in. Costume-wise, hair-wise, makeup-wise, they are three interesting, beautiful women. And I will say that as a boy in early puberty, having this woman who could turn into any woman you wanted, I went, boy, that seems like a cool thing. Absolutely, yes. You have a knack for giving me difficult choices. And they kiss more, and the music is building, and he starts to ask questions. Yep, yep. And he hears about the transmuter. Um, it's the first time we've heard the, the, yeah. about the transmute. And she's continuing to ask, answer questions. And then there's a long kiss. And then she pulls away angry and says, You are using me. You hold me in your arms and there is no fire in your mind. Now she's pissed. Yeah. Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. And man, Kirk's angry face at this moment. You are using me. Why not? You've been using me and my crew. 
and the guards come in to take him away, and she yells. You will be swept away. You, your men, your ship, your wolves! And then we're back on the Enterprise to hear that they're trying to punch through the force field, and it's not that important, and we're going to move on. Um, <laughs> we're in the dungeons, and in comes Korab to unlock them. So Korob has now turned on Sylvia. Yeah. She's out of control. She won't listen to reason. She won't listen to Korob. Like now he realizes, like, sorry guys, you know, like I just wanna wanna let wanna let you go. And but they're not leaving without Scotty and Sula. Well, and one of the things he said is, I've released the model of your ship from the crystal, which is again evidence of why it was totally unimportant to cut back to the Enterprise. Absolutely. Because there was nothing if the if the bad guy's gonna take them out of the trap, why spend several scenes watching them try to get out of the trap? And, and if they actually have a scene on the Enterprise where the Enterprise is actually making progress yeah. in in, get, in in getting through the force field. What was the point? Only to have Korob like whisk it away. Like, why even bother? Why bother? Like, it should have been that the Enterprise got rid of the force field, well, not Korob. It's what's really funny is in what are little girls made of? Spock does figure it out and get down to the planet, and he is too late. It ends up that it made no difference because it was all done with Roger Corby and everything. But watching the half-breed moment and him figuring out and go down, that was all really fun because it was interesting. This is not. Mm. It's not fun. It's just stuff that's happening. It's stuff that, you know, when Star Trek is not good is when people are talking about the technical thing they're doing with the Enterprise and there is no emotional resonance to it. Absolutely. That's a great point. You know, we're funneling more energy into the deflector dish to do blah, 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 blah. And it's like, okay, you know, I don't care. I will say that the later shows, when they get into all that techno babble, they start using terminology that just make uh, my eyes roll back into my head and I, it bores me. Yeah. We're reversing the polarity on the blah, blah, you know, I, yeah, it's just the like, singularity to avoid the uh, temporal effect on the, uh, yeah. uh, the event horizon of the yeah. temporal vortex. Huh? <laughs> yeah. Cause well, cause this is the thing. It's all about humans. If humans are resonant, if humans are doing interesting things, if humans are struggling, if humans have to overcome obstacles, they can be overcoming obstacles that have a technical thing to them. Like a line, like, Whatever it is, contact in 12 seconds. That that resonates. Yeah. <laughs> okay? <laughs> yeah, totally. You must go before she finds the weapon is missing. I'm not leaving without my men. They're not your men anymore. They belong to Sylvia. I can no longer control them or her. And it's like, what's the thing you're carrying around? Why is it not help you to do anything? Yeah, that thing is pretty powerful. How can it not just... Can't you just get, get rid of Sylvia? <laughs> yeah. Or, well, or fight her in some way. But he's like, nope, I can't. I'm sorry. There's one of my favorite Simpsons lines where Homer says, I've tried nothing and I'm all out of ideas. <laughs> She's a great danger. And it was not necessary. We could have entered your galaxy in peace. And my note here was, seriously, what was the plan? <laughs> what were you trying to do? Yeah, why were you here? Yeah, well, it's like if you wanted to come in in peace, why did you kill Jackson and try to scare the Enterprise away? Why didn't you just go, hi? <laughs> yeah, we come in peace. Yeah, yeah. literally. Like, we got we this cool peace. transmuter thing, and we're little creatures, but we'd love to hang out, and we could learn from each other. It'd be great. <laughs> that would have been a completely different episode. <laughs> it's a very short episode, but very satisfying. <laughs> we hear a giant cat screeching, and we see a giant shadow of a little cat on a wall. <laughs> yeah, it's... Uh, even as a kid, I was like, that's a shadow. It's a little cheesy. Yeah. One, one of the techniques you use, by the way, I don't know if you'll notice that the cat moves in slow motion. Yeah. And the, one of the reasons is, is anytime you do scale and you want something little to look big and it moves, you have to slow it down. 
And the reason is, is because gravity, there's certain things that move at a consistent speed. So if like I have a model of the Empire State Building and I drop something off the model of the Empire State Building, it will take two seconds to get to the ground. And so even if I film it like it's the real thing, things fall too fast. And so you put them into slow motion so that the slow motion matches and the scale. scale. The scale. Exactly. So ah. the cat, that's why, and you'll see it in one of the places that's really noticeable, by the way, anytime you have models of ships in water, because they slow down the ships so that they look bigger, but the droplets of water are too big because droplets of water are a specific size. So that cat, the reason it never looks right is you can see it's in slow motion. And the slow motion is what kills the effect of making it look big. Yeah. You know? Um, And that is the end of Act 3. We're back in Act 4. We start with the incredibly terrifying giant cat shadow. Fascinating. Why a cat? Racial memories. A cat is the most ruthless, most terrifying of animals. As far back as the saber-toothed tiger. Now, we talked, I think we were off mic, that when a cat really hisses at you, it is it genuinely is scary. scary. Yeah, but yeah. I don't think the cat is the most terrifying of animals. I, 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 but a cat hissing. That is scary. It's scary. Definitely yeah. true. I think I can stop her. You better let us. It pulls out a phaser. It's out of energy. Which again, like, well, why do we even have it? Like, what's the, like, what was the point of getting it just to pull it out and have it be drained? She must have drained it. We could have jumped Scott and Sulu at any time. We didn't know. And they discover there's trapped. There's no way out. Um, and the cat is coming down the hall, a tiny hallway in slow motion. They go back to the same dungeon. They close the door. And Spock now looks up at the hole that they fell through earlier and goes, oh, maybe we can get out this way. Says, ready when you are, Captain. And Kirk lifts him up and Spock jumps out. It's pretty spry. And Korab goes to the closed door. Why? Exactly. Why does he go to the closed door? Why doesn't he stand by Kirk and wait for the wait for wait for his turn to go up to the next well, level? Why doesn't he use the transmuter that's in his hand? Yeah. Why doesn't yeah. he do anything? Yeah, yeah. Why doesn't he use the transmuter to maybe maybe turn himself into a giant cat and and take on Sylvia the giant cat? Yeah. I don't know. You're right. Yeah. Lots of questions. And this is this is just bad writing. Yeah. And but he goes and he just stands at the door. Well, Spock gets up to the next floor, and then we see. I like. I do like the shot of the cat through the window in the tiny yeah, door. I like that. I think that works really well. And we hear that door won't last, and, the, and of course it doesn't. And he was just standing next to the door, gets crushed by the the door. Uh, Kirk goes back, tries to help him, realizes he's dead, starts to leave, and then he grabs the transmuter as the cat is hissing at him through the door. And I love Spock, who says, Captain, a bit more alacrity, if you please. Which is a great Spock line. I also love, it just looks cool when Kirk tosses the transmuter up and Spock catches it. It's a nice little bit of physicality. Kirk gets up there, and McCoy immediately attacks with a mace. It's a terrible stunt, man. It just looks nothing nothing like McCoy. And Kirk knocks McCoy out. Oh, by the way, uh, this is the source of one of the great bloopers mm. on that blooper reel that yeah. I discussed before. So this the scene when McCoy goes to attack Kirk mm-hmm. with that club that he's holding. Yeah. So you see Kirk knock the club out of McCoy's hand, mm-hmm. and then he knocks him out. Right. So in the blooper, you see Shatner knock the club out of DeForest Kelly's hand. So so he knocks the club out of his hand. The club bounces off the wall, 
I'm back into DeForest Kelly's hand. Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> that's <laughs> hilarious. DeForest Kelly, like, like you could see in a split second, he's like, should I pretend to drop it? But he holds on to it and he laughs and it kind of breaks up the scene. By the way, I went on, because we you branched it so many times and I hadn't watched it in forever. So I went on YouTube to look at that blooper reel. Man, it's, the condition is just terrible. Oh, it's awful. And I, I really go like, okay, somebody today should be able to restore this. I mean, it's in really bad shape, but they should be able to restore it a little bit so that it's at least, it, you can barely watch it now. You can it's barely a, see it. Yeah, it's it's been, terrible. It's, it's so many generations removed. Uh, Scotty is attacking Spock, who dodges and does a little FSNP on him. And then uh, Sulu gets in a martial arts pose. And I, I, I hate when he does that. It's such a, it's so, uh, such a stereotype. It, it totally, what's so funny is as a kid, when I was nine, like when I saw Enter the Dragon at nine years old, that might be the most life-changing movie of my life. Wow. Well, because, oh, yeah. because you know, 25 years of taking martial arts classes after that. Did you it, cover that on Cinephiles? We did. We did do it on Cinephiles. Of course Cinephiles. you did. Yeah. Um, we did it really early, though. So, like, before it got to be this huge, long show. But so anytime I saw anybody doing anything that looked remotely like martial arts, I really liked it. Um, and looking at it now, I'm like, oh, that is... They don't know what they're doing. It's not. It doesn't look right. And then, the, it, as bad as the stuntman for McCoy is, the stuntman for Sulu is terrible. Yeah, it's bad. And it's really. But what I find, I almost. It's, I'm just gonna sound weird to say. I almost find it like it's not racist, but Sulu goes down and kind of hits this door and then is awake and then just passes out. Yeah, he knocks out. It it's is. Ba- it's bad. It's, it's poorly. It's edited. just really lame, and yeah. it and it makes. Sulu look bad. You know what I mean? Yeah, I agree. It, it just, it's just really, really lame. McCoy wakes up again, gets knocked out again. And then we hear again the screech of the cat and the shadow cat is approaching. Most unpleasant situation, Captain. If only your phaser had some power. Maybe we do. And he grabs the transmuter and he holds up the wand. Sylvia, I have the transmuter. It's mine now. And the cat backs up and disappears. And then we hear. You're very clever, Captain. More so than I'd imagined. And there is Sylvia. Clever, resourceful, and handsome. And is moving towards him, and Spock says, Don't let her touch the wand, Captain. And it's like, really? (laughs) Thanks, Spock. (laughs) I think we figured that part out. Except that she's done everything with the necklace. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's zombified people with the necklace. She's done all this powerful stuff with the necklace. Why can't she do that right now? I wasn't sure before, but I am now. This is the source of your power, isn't it? The no, transmuter. No, not the source. It's merely an amplifier, a director. The mind is the source. Mine is simple, but yours has the key, but you don't know how to use it. So I think what she... So first of all, it's very much like Trelane. Yeah, absolutely. It looks like Trelane. The second thing is, is she's she saying that your mind would be the key to using the transmuter, but you don't know how to use the transmuter? Is that what she's saying? I think so. I think so, too. Come with me. I will teach you. You will teach me. Why? Because your people have nothing of your own? Is that why you need us? We need your dreams, your ambition. With them, I can build. Give me the transmuter. No. They're like parasites in some ways. Well, but this is what doesn't make sense. Because she says, we need your dreams, your ambition. That that line does sound like they're parasites. But then why did Kobar say we could we could have come in peacefully? And why did they try to scare them away? And what was the test that they passed? And why did they have to pass the test? And why did she not use... Sulu and McCoy for their dreams. And it's it's all doesn't make sense. Yeah, why Kirk? Why 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 wouldn't one of those people suffice? Well, if the mission had become because they're because the way Kirk says it is is your people have nothing of your own. It implies that their mission 
had something to do with being a parasite. But then why? But that's Sylvia is doing something totally different from what yeah. Kobar's because mm -hmm. she says you're a puppet and he says you're betraying the old ones. Korob. Korob. I'm never going to. It's we're almost done with the episode. <laughs> it's like it's, I'm, I'm just it's just not going to it's not going to sit in my brain. <laughs> Um, do you ever have things where like I, 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 you obviously you have a mind like a steel trap for like a whole bunch of information. I am assuming there are other things that you cannot keep in there. Oh, yeah, there are for sure. Yeah, yeah I, I uh, can't I'm like I, I, I can't remember people's names when I first meet them. I'm terrible at that. Terrible. Yeah. 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 And I'm I could. Like, What's your name again? Sorry. I mean, there are people that I've met several times that I have to pretend that I can remember what their name is. Yeah. 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 But if you ask me like, the you know, something that James Buchanan did in 18, you know, 58, I might be able to pull that out. But yeah. names now I can't do it. Um, anyway, it's a bit of a digression. Don't you know what you're giving up? Everything that your species finds desirable. Look at me. I'm a woman. I am all women. And then he like pushes her away. And she kneels in front of him. It's really weird. Yeah, it's weird. And he pushes her away and she like falls. And he says, I don't know if you are, but you're not a woman. There's a weird sexist thing about this of saying like. Yeah, I agree. It's, it's sort of a the women are, are these warm, compassionate creatures. And you're clearly not that. So you can't be a woman is like, well. He's, he's saying something nice, but it's also sort of reductive. Mm -hmm. And she pulls out a phaser. Korob was wrong. I didn't destroy all your weapons. Which Korob never said that he destro she destroyed their weapons. I guess. Uh, yeah, he didn't, did no. he? No, he said, here, I'm giving you some of your weapons back. Yeah, but. He didn't say she destroyed the others. But they, it was, I guess they just. Well, wait, no, Kirk says, uh, oh, you know, that the, there's no what there's no power in the phasers. We could have jumped Scott and Sulu at any time. But Korab never said anything about Sylvia destroyed your weapons. Right. Um, which maybe was from an earlier draft or who knows. And she says, give me the transmuter. Give it to me. And he starts to offer it. because I, I love this, by the way. I yeah. love this moment. You know, he starts like he's going to give it to her. And then he smashes it on the table. There's like a flash. And then Kirk is on the surface of Pirate 7. Yep. With his phaser in his hand, yep, and Spock and Scotty and Sulu, and McCoy, come over to him. Yep, everything is gone. Yep. So, that's at this moment is when we hear Scotty say his one and only spoken line in the episode, which is "Everything's vanished." Sulu, we see him throughout the episode, but he never says a word. <laughs> it's the only time that George Takei didn't have any dialogue. Oh wow! During his during the original show. But then this is when we see Korob and Sylvia as who they really are. And in the original version of the of this episode, you can see the strings uh, that they're marionettes right. and yeah. it looks so fake. And I actually like the design of these creatures. Yeah, I do too. Yeah, but I just like that it's not just like an alien of the week with a yeah. weird forehead and a weird nose. Right. But the marionette, the the strings, when they did the remastered version with the revised special effects, they actually were able to take out the, str the strings. So it looks a whole lot better. Korob and Sylvia, as they really are. Their forms were an illusion. An illusion. So does that mean that the castle was never really there? Does that mean that these life forms, these ornithoid life forms, were they like the Talosians in the cage that they were, that they had power of illusion now in in the cage the Talosians, their power of illusion was organic 
but or or was it organic? No, I don't think we know. We don't. We actually don't know where the source of the power of illusion came from on Talos Four, but we do know that the source of the power of illusion from these ornithoid life forms came from this transmuter. So was there ever actually a physical sustenance to the castle and everything inside the castle? Or was it all really an illusion? Like, that's what I don't think we really know. I don't think, well, and I, th- I don't think, th- I don't think they knew. Because isn't there a line where Spock says, well, this is all real? Like, clearly, like somewhere where they're in the dungeon or with the manacles or something like that. I feel like there's a moment where they say, like, you know, this. Well, and the thing, like, well, what do we... Yeah, I, I don't think they know. I don't think it's consistent. Well, because we also go to like if we're in the holodeck and I pick something up, that thing I pick up is real because it was created through transporter, you know, replicator sort of technology. That's the idea. If I'm in a, an illusion and I pick something up and feel it, well, are you in in the cage? I'm just in a cage. Nothing is actually happening. Whereas it could be that they – because they talk about – uh, Korob says we can move and create matter and alter things, molecular structure. So clearly it's not all an illusion, you know, but I, but what I really think is they said it was an illusion when it was convenient for the writers to say an illusion. And they said other things when it was convenient to say other things. Fascinating. A life form totally alien to our galaxy. If we could preserve and study this. Too late. Yep. They're gone. They're They're gone. They're dead. They're, they're now smoking. And, and disintegrating and burning up. All of this, just an illusion. No illusion. Jackson is dead. Kirk to Enterprise, come in. Standing by, Captain. Five to beam up. And no joke. We don't get a joke at the yeah, end. Yeah, we don't get a joke. And that is the end of Cat's Ball. So what did some of our cast members have to say about Cat's Ball? Well, Dorothy Fontana, who was the story editor at the time, said that was planned all along to be a Halloween show. When Robert Block pitched it, we said, that's got to be the Halloween show for sure. I liked it. I thought it was pretty good. William Shatner said, unfortunately, due to the usual budgetary constraints, we couldn't afford the necessary optical effects that would have made the giant cat seem more realistic and scary. And the heavy black strings used to guide the puppets of Alien Sylvia and Korob are definitely noticeable. Antoine Bauer, who played Sylvia, said, We spent a lot of time trying to seduce the real cat into coming through the tunnel. (laughs) (laughs) And it was a lot of fun, mainly because of the lovely cast, who obviously had no idea that Star Trek would become the huge cult thing that it still is. Mm. I can tell you sort of my final thought. I think I, you know what? I don't have much to say. Scott, when we started this, you said, I hope that maybe some of my epiphanies can make you like this episode a little more. Did they? Did they? The Chekhov one. The Chekhov one. That is the one. That is 100%, 100% awesome and totally makes this an important, critical episode in Star <laughs> Trek canon. Otherwise... But I fear that maybe it went a little bit the other way. I might have taken away a little bit of this episode. I, I think it's weak. And I think it gets weaker the more I think about it. It's not because of the actors. I think they're all good. It's not because of the production design. I think it's all good. I think that they went, we want to make a Halloween episode. And maybe there were a bunch of different writers. But it just doesn't make any sense to me at all. Well, you know what? I think the fact that this episode does tie into uh, some of the episodes that we've seen when it comes to absolute power corrupting. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the 
if the other epiphany that I had about how similar this episode is to the Squire of Gothos, which is a superior episode. Agreed, 100%. Uh, you know, it is, a, it is absolutely, Squire of Gothos is a much better episode. But just the, the, the revelation that I had about those similarities uh, made me discover something new about this episode, Cat's Ball, that I never really realized before. But I, I agree with you. There are a lot of, lot of holes a lot of things that are questionable about plot points in this teleplay, but I still think it's a fun episode. I still think because it is the only episode done uh, to order for a right. holiday, it makes it fun. Like I said, the cinematography from Jerry Finnerman is breathtaking. Uh, the score by Gerald Freed is uh, absolutely uh, one of the best and was reused many times in other episodes. Uh, I think those the, the cast looks great yep. because they yep. were all in great form after having the having a, some summertime. And it was the first episode film for season two. And this is an episode that I think it's fun because I think the less I really think about it, even though with, we overthink things on Enterprise yeah. incidents, but as much as I agree with your your points of contention, uh, it is still an episode that I choose to enjoy just for the face value of it all. And uh, uh, the only thing that makes me like it more is uh, the <laughs> epiphany with, yeah. with Trillian and also, of course, the uh, revelation I had about the star date with Chekhov. Well, so we would love to hear how you feel about Cat's Paw. Is it one of your favorites? Have I ruined it for you? <laughs> is it one of the parts of it that you like the most? And please, if anybody can tell us what they're actually trying to accomplish, I would like to know. Best place to contact us is on our Facebook page. Do a search for Enterprise Incidents. But also we're on Twitter under Enter Incidents on Instagram at Enterprise Incidents. Please subscribe to the show if you haven't already on Apple Podcasts. If you're not an Apple person, do it on YouTube. If you don't like YouTube, you can go to Spotify. If you don't like Spotify, you can go to Stitcher. And if you don't like any of those, there's probably 900 other podcast servers where you can find Enterprise Incidents. But even if you don't like any of them, please go back to apple Podcasts and leave a review if you can because they really do help the show um and you can follow me at sr morris on twitter at sr morris one on instagram and if you like stories with castles and magic and things like that well you can listen to the cinephiles episode on the princess bride or excalibur or beauty and the beast or one of my favorite episodes with one of my favorite guests we've ever had on the cinephiles you can listen to our episode on the adventures of Robin Hood with Errol Flynn and our special guest, Joe Montaigne. What about, wait a minute, what about if you're talking about like ghosts and ghosts in haunted houses, didn't you on the cinephiles do a deep dive on The Shining? We did. It's funny. It was on my list here, but then I was kind of feeling, I've already listed too many. Maybe I listed too many, but yes, we did a great, one of my favorite episodes is on The Shining. That's another one you could check out. Well, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at MovieMans. Please be sure to share Enterprise Incidents with fellow Star Trek fans, whether they are deep divers or casual fans, whether they are diehards of the original series, or maybe they just need a refresher course on what makes the original series the greatest Star Trek series of them all but please do spread the love by sharing Enterprise Incidents we are grateful for your support we are grateful for your feedback, your reviews for the for the engagement that we've been having with you on social media and thank you so much for your support and up next on Enterprise Incidents we are doing the deep dive on my single favorite and I mean favorite episode of Star Trek of them all it is Metamorphosis. That is next 
on enterprise incidents. And until then, keep going boldly. Boldly.